out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, creative artist. It is Stuart Moxham, one-time member of the Young Marble Giants, has gone on to do a lot of solo projects and also collaborations with other artists. Um, so this is it. Um, just to say that there is, during the interview, the uh, line breaks up, or actually stops twice so there is a little bit of a jump in the interview but you'll get the gist it's a great interview he's an amazing person so you're going to find out more about the young marble giants and much much more anyway after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years i know do take uh, notes i will test you at the end there's some interesting bits here anyway Stuart, take it away well i'm a bit older than you so uh i was born in 55 um, the first piece of music I can ever remember is actually a wonderful, um, it's the Karelia Suite, um, which is um, by the Finnish composer whose name is now escaping me. Oh dear, this is one of the things, one of the things about being born in 1955, I can't remember anything by now. <laughs> um, anyway, it's spelled K-A-R-E-L-I-A, I have to look it up. Um, in fact, I'm on. Okay, yeah, so um, I can't think of his name. It was written. It was written to kind of encourage the Finnish people to, you know, patriotically rise up against the Russians. Uh, and um, recorded the first version of it was recorded in Abbey Road, um, and it's a fantastic version. All the others are different from that, actually. So that was because my my dad, you know, was a huge huge influence, you know, and. Uh, it would have been on the radio when I was a, a toddler. You know, that original version as well, probably. Yes. Um, so, <clears throat> so, and, and that's, that, that melody, um, I mean, I could whistle it now, it's, it's stuck in my mind as a, as a toddler. And of course, over the decades, uh, I could never, because my dad, I could ask him, what's this piece of music, Dad? And he'd know it just straight away. Um, classical music, I mean. So, or opera or, musicals yeah um so like every now and again but once every 15 years it would pop into my head and i'd go oh i must remember to tell ask my dad what this is and one day i did and he said oh there you go that's what it is so uh finnish very famous finnish composer but yeah. sorry it hasn't come to me yet Yes, you must by the end tell us because I'm sort of like oh I'm here with my pen and paper thinking I must go and see it or listen to it right. Well, hang on, just hang on a second. Yes, the, the, we're, we're, we're waiting with bated breath. Or the public are going yeah, to go. Yeah, what I'm going to do is um, I, I use uh, USB tethering. I don't have broadband. Right. So I just plug my phone into my device. Nice. We like that. And, and that's how I... I access the internet, so I'm having now done that. I'm going to get find out for you. Yes. Come to you as I'm typing it in. It's a small part of a of a larger piece, and it is, of course, by Sibelius. Oh, yeah, and, right. Um, um, 
Jean or Jean, I don't know how to say it. I think, I think yeah, Jean would sound very English, wouldn't it, if you said it like that? Yeah. Jean. Yeah. So, yes, at the beginning of his career. Um, it's just so moving, you know. It really, it really does make your heart swell up in your chest, you know. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah, So, but I think... To, I think that's a long-winded, sort of slightly off, off <laughs> answer. I think probably the Beatles, you know. I mean, the first thing I remember singing as a child, about six years old, everybody suddenly was... Nobody had ever sang anything before, none of us in school, you know, in the playground. And everyone was singing Twist and Shout, which, of course, isn't a Beatles song. But, you know, we, everyone was singing Twist and Shout. This is true. And, a phenomenon, you know, and um, and of course it seemed like they put out a brilliant record every five minutes, you know. So I was, I, you know, a Beatles boy, absolutely, and the Kinks, you know, and you know, the Stones as well. So that's my kind of yes, music. So were your parents quite sort of um, not academic, but sort of a bit bohemian or sort of I don't know? Neither, neither of those things. I think they were definitely educationally aspirational. Right. Um, very much education was like the holy grail, you know, the most important thing. There was a piano in our front room, which nobody used, but it was there. And um, we had, uh, my brother, my older brother, Richard, and I had lessons as children, but we absolutely hated it. Um, and um, we, we had a record player and the radio, of course. Um, and I had my older brother... Uh, was in the Royal Navy uh, in the 60s. He joined at 15 um, when they still had the uh, the birch. Nice. I believe that. And, uh, yeah, if you were unlucky. And, um, of course, he came back from places like Japan with um, you know, with stereo and headphones and, and Jimi Hendrix uh, bootlegs and, you know, prog rock records and Eno stuff. It was just wonderful, you know. So that, he was also a huge influence. My dad has been a singer. He's um, still around, actually. He's in his 90s now. Um, but he's been a singer all his adult life, probably younger than that as well, in church originally. Mm. Um, yeah, he got to the point where he was in the BBC Welsh Chorus with Alan Jones as a young lad. So, uh, yeah, pretty good singer. Well, absolutely. No, that's quite something. It's amazing your your brother was into sort of such kind of alternative or countercultural music because my brother went in the army when he was i don't know 16 for five years mm. and um mm -hmm. and he brought back lots of hi-fi from because he was based in germany so we had a he was kind of on that cutting edge because they just had a lot of money when you went in the army and you didn't have any bills or expenses particularly did you exactly so yeah. um but musically i wouldn't say he had the greatest music taste it was a bit you know run-of-the-mill chart stuff i suppose but um that's yeah, your brother was obviously quite um, yes hip to the group. So yeah. when when yeah, you got... I don't know, yeah, I don't know why, but yeah, he was. Yeah, he must have been a bit. Well, I mean, we, we were brought up with a, quite a lot of a wide range of, of music. You know, we everything from opera to the swingle singers, hymns, carols, um, novelty records. You know, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of stuff at home. You know. Yes, and, and what about your mum? Was she, was she was she at all musical? 
Paul Mum, you know, being a 50s, 60s housewife, didn't have time to do anything apart from run the house and the family. She had four sons. You know? Oh, God, four sons. My mum had three yeah. sons, and that was a disaster, yeah. really. And and obviously, <laughs> and a husband. So there was four four boys, men, mm. and one yeah. woman. And, yeah. um, and frankly, yeah, yeah. you know, we still, we don't talk about it so much, but you, you just talk about the fact that the... Around the toilet, it was discussed, and sometimes she said, "Try and get in." Yeah, anyway, you could imagine why there yeah, was that little bit of where it's going. Yeah. a bit of carpet yeah, around the toilet. Yeah. It was terrible, really. Yeah, very, very difficult for. for did she also? I mean, just on a domestic level, did she have one of those twin tub washing machines that used to sort of have to be pulled out in the middle of the kitchen, and you'd have to, so, you know, the the unfortunately, it's the the. The, the housewife used to spend all day sort of just washing clothes with this twin tub thing sort of vibrating in the middle not in a sexy yeah. way either but it was lots of no, I, I, yeah. no, I don't think so I don't think we, were, we didn't have a lot of money we weren't poor but we didn't have a lot of money I can't remember what the laundry arrangements were in fact because mum could quite easily said right you lot this is how you cook food this is how you lay the table this is how you press your school uniform or whatever, but she never did. She just took it all on herself. Yeah, I know. And we just let her get on with it, you know, even about playing or whatever, you know, which was very, it's very unfair. It was horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> I feel guilty cool. about it still. So, um, yes, <laughs> it was not, mm-hmm. it was not good. So when you got to 16, like 1971, um, you must have been quite, I mean, by then you'd been spoiled rotten with, obviously there was lots of music which wasn't that amazing. Well, it probably was, but it wasn't, you know, like you mentioned, you know, the Beatles, Stones, Kinks, probably Jimi Hendrix, the whole counterculture. So by the age of 16, did you stay on to do A-levels or were you leaving school at that I point? I did. Well, yeah, in fact, um, I what happened was that my parents out of the blue divorced when I was just about to sit my O levels, so um, it all went tits up. God, that must I have been the take, biggest shock ever. Yeah, it was. I, I I did actually take English a year early because I was good at it, and and I only scraped it and did that didn't ring any alarm bells for me. I was completely utterly you know fucked by the whole thing really, um, and I had to stay back for a year at school. Which is really humiliating. I, I only got two. I got two. I, I passed art in the year that I took all you know, the other ten subjects. Um, it all went completely piton, as people used to say. So then I had to stay back, and uh, in the end, I got six O levels and one A one A level, which was English, just like Prince Charles, funny enough. Mm. Um, yeah, but I was yeah. I mean, you know, I've been off. I've been well. I got PTSD, as we call it nowadays. Um, completely isolated and you know messed up, which is why you know all my songs are an attempt to try and understand what the fuck is going on. You know, yes. my lyrics are all you know basically come from that struggle. You know, yeah. And did you did you have to make that terrible decision of which which parent to go and live with? No, no, I didn't. No, my dad had to go, um, and he wasn't far away, but he effectively had gone. You know. Yes. Uh, anyway, 
Yeah. So God. here we are. Horrendous. Shit happens, as they say. Yeah. Shit did happen there, didn't it? Um, did you? So did, was that the end of the school period, or did you manage to scrape to a polytechnic? No, I, I just I didn't know what the hell to do with myself. You know, it's just um, um, I, as I say, I did I did get one A level. I dropped two, um, and um, discovered marijuana um, at eighteen, and. Um, I went. I joined the Royal Navy. Um, I knew it wasn't the right thing to do, but uh, but it meant I, I got away and yes. I, I, had, I got into a sort of structured, um, as you say, you're looked after. You get your food, your accommodation, your money, your dentistry, your haircut, everything. Driving license. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You got. So, him. Yes, that was quite. Um, so. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's what I did. But I didn't. I didn't stay very long. I I left um, as early as I possibly could, in fact. And um, then I hooked up with a a friend I'd made shortly before joining the navy. In the uh, I joined the navy in January of seventy five, and in the previous autumn, um, I'd made a friend. Um, and when I came came out of the Navy and went back home to Cardiff, I naturally looked him up, you know, and he was a huge influence as well because he he was a sort of English public school boy doing his degree in Cardiff. And um, he was a real music fan. He had the enemy every week. He had lots of records. He had money to buy records and things. And uh, so we would, you know, we would, it was all music oriented. And one day he said, Do you fancy learning to play the guitar? And I just looked at my watch and went, um, oh, all right. <laughs> and, and that was my, my Damascene moment. You know, there we are. That was it. I knew almost immediately that, the, that music and songwriting was what I, I, I wanted to do with my life. Blimey, that was, that was quite a moment. I, you know, I haven't done this show for a long time. It does seem like it does have a moment a bit like what you just experienced, that ha- that happens, you know, it's very, it's not like vague. I mean, I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of people do have that kind of, Yeah. there was a moment, this person came into my life, they gave me the guitar or they just taught me a few chords and that was all I was going to do for the rest of my life, even though sometimes people had to have a side hustle to, to make things, you know, pay bills, but it was going to be music and until they yeah. d- died. So, um, yeah. Well, yes, that's what it is for me. You know, I've done plenty of, menial side hustles you know um some not quite so menial but um it's always been to a fault it's been my focus you know it's been my life raft actually i've clung to it like a bastard to be honest <laughs> yeah. probably unhealthily focused on it you know um but but it's very rewarding your friend which and did you continue a friendship with your friend i did actually we, we in fact what happened was I was looking for somewhere to live, obviously, um, and he was in halls, um, sort of way out of Cardiff, up on a you know, suburban hill, and he did hated the food, which was included in the cost, so he wanted to move out. Um, so we actually shared a flat in near the centre of Cardiff, in a really nice area, in fact. I mean, he's from a sort of middle-class background, so... Um, and... Um, yeah, so, and we, uh, in fact, 
fact, it turned out that he hardly knew anything about the guitar or how to play it himself. He knew a few chords, you know. Um, and we sort of both started to try and write songs. And, um, and there was a sort of, you know, a friendly uh, rivalry went on. Um, we were both, you know, really into it. And uh, I bought myself a guitar. Or probably like went to my girlfriend and asked her for some money, and, and she bought my guitar, or <laughs> something like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's, and then he actually was the guy. Um, you know, I've been writing all about this actually because I'm writing a memoir, so it's like, that's how I can remember it. Right. So um, who is this so mysterious person? What, I was a guy called Matthew Davis, with no E, D A V I S. Um, and he, uh, let me think about this now. I, I, ta I taught my brother, Phil, my younger brother, who's like five years younger than me, um, the guitar, because I was a zealot, you know, I wanted to teach everyone to play the guitar, you know. Um, and then I got really, I moved out of the flat. Um, we had a falling out, Matthew and I. And um, I went to art college and that, that didn't really work out, but dropped out of that. And I ended up in this sort of rather depressing bedsit about two stones throw away from the family home, you know, and I thought, well, this, what am I doing? You know, uh, and I was into my elder brother, Richard, got me into push bikes initially and then motorbikes. And I had a, I was, I was actually kind of restoring an old British motorbike in the summer of 76, that immensely hot summer. Mm. And um, I, I ended up part exchanging it for a Honda uh, trail bike I thought right now I can go somewhere and I just I literally put some stuff in a couple of you know plastic bin bags on the back of the bike and I set off joined the youth hostel association that day and set off for Norwich brilliant in January in January mm, not <laughs> there's so no brilliant. direct route no direct route from Cardiff to Norwich it's an absolute eight hour you know now of course in those days 70s this would be 77 January is you know, I mean, I, I don't know how I did it, really, um, but I did. And, uh, yeah, so I was working on a farm there. Uh, really enjoyed that, actually. And going back on the odd weekend occasionally just to see what was going on in Cardiff. And so, Matthew would form... Yeah, just to hmm. pause you there, the interesting hmm. thing is, and why my ears are pricked up, is that that's where I'm based. That's, in fact, where I'm living at the moment is Norwich. So, so Really? Slightly... <laughs> Slightly going to have to hold you back there on Norwich. Um, so you went to the youth hostel in Norwich, which is... Uh, God, yeah, by, I don't it know. was by the Roman Catholic Cathedral. Nice. It's not there anymore. Yeah, it's not there anymore. I checked it out. Yeah. Like, it's a real adventure, actually. It's a real chapter in life, that, you know. I worked on the Holt Road in Haveringland in, on a farm up there, and it was just brilliant. I, I, I mean, we're all from farming stock, aren't we, basically, originally? We are. And... Uh, and but I think, you know, it suited me. How did you how did you find this kind of farm job then in seventy? Oh, I just went to the job centre. Oh, and just said, "Yeah, hook me." You are a bit. This is a bit Jack Kerouac at the moment. You know, this is a bit on the road, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> well, I've read him, of course. Yeah, did I was you? A huge reader, huge reader. I worked in a bookshop in Cardiff when I was living with uh, Matthew when we were sharing this place. Yes. You know, for instance. So, yeah, so I was, I've always been a big reader, yeah. 
So did you um on the, just I hate to hold you back on the farm bit, but what was no, I mean no, this, this is this is January time, which in the winters yeah. of the old days, in especially the seventies, I remember them being really hard, cold, yeah. and you know like frost and you know That's six terrible. inches. Terrible, yeah, I, yeah. I was digging frozen sand and things like that. Yeah. And did they keep sort of livestock or animals? Yes, and... it was a it was a, a huge thousand acre. Um, in fact, it was two farms together. The, the guy owned, both, you know, lived on one, and had the other farm had a farmhouse which he rented out. Yes, so a woman with three daughters that could have gone somewhere, but never did. Oh, um, <laughs> so close. Uh, even though I lived, I was living eventually in, a, in an old camper van, a tiny little camper van in that second farm with the three daughters. Um, with the ice an inch thick on inside, you know, and all that, yeah. yeah. It does look like yeah. one of the. It does read like one of those kind of romantic kind of novels, didn't they? From far, <laughs> far from the maddening crowd or something like this. This buxom yeah. man in his camper van with three daughters. I mean, Jesus! It all. It does. You know, it's Hollywood, isn't it? It but, should be really, yeah. But it didn't. Be. I mean, I would have stayed. You know, I would have stayed there. I was looking for another job because it was only a temporary one, unfortunately. And um, I think the farmer had had a really bad experience with somebody before he kept coming up to me saying, you know, you've only got eight weeks left or five weeks. Said, yeah, I know, I know, you know. I think he'd had someone messing about somehow right. in the past. But anyway, there was no work. I mean, the, the only work I could find was on the turkey farm. I thought, geez, I don't want to do that, you know. Yes, so I, went, I went home, I went, I went back to Cardiff on the motorbike and uh, it was a sort of weekend and there was a gig. Uh, in the centre of town and it was Matthew he'd formed a covers band he'd got Phil to take up playing the bass and uh, he said oh you know come and see us you know but we, we need a singer because the singer we've got isn't very good so I went to this club and uh, I agreed he wasn't very good and um, I was a bit distracted because Wendy Smith was there and I sort of um, started you know a relationship with her and asked her to dance and you know that's where it started um, anyway, but I got the gig, and um, so that's how Phil and I ended up in the same band. And then shortly after that, Matthew recruited two backing singers. One was Alison Stanton, and the other one, I can never remember her name. I wish I, I could, but anyway, she became Matthew's girlfriend, and obviously Alison became Phil's girlfriend, as happens in these things, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. So, so that's that's who Matthew was, you know. Um, so it's like, it was kind of a lineup, a bit like the Fleetwood Mac rumours period, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Less famous in Cardiff. Exactly the same. Otherwise, sacks, sacks of cocaine, you know. Yeah. Yes, no. and millions of pounds. No, we, we had a, we did actually quite well. We had a, a residency in one of the best city centre venues. Um, but we also had some really funny things happen because we were doing stuff. It was all Matthew's choice of music, you know. Um, he knew much more about music than certainly I did. And we were doing a real range of stuff, you know. We were doing things like um, Stevie Wonder, Velvet Underground, um, you know, Lou Reed and all this kind of stuff. And somebody asked us in desperation if we'd do a wedding. And apparently the, the band had double booked and they couldn't do it. So whoever this poor woman was who was getting married had us not come on and we were all doing you know I'm waiting for the man and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> heroin and what have you you know like white, white heat and this I think it must have been the father of the bride came up to me and I wish I'd kept this bit of paper 
gave me this note because I was the, the front man, you know, the singer and rhythm guitarist. He gave me this piece of paper and said, please taste something nice before everybody goes away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But, of course, we, we couldn't. We only knew what we knew, you know. Oh, God. Oh, dear. A disastrous. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you got paid anyway. Yeah. Blimey, that was a bit <laughs> of a strange one. So then with that lineup, sort of very early days, does Ma- Matthew mm. then leaves? Yeah, I, can't, I don't know what happened. I think he probably finished his course. Um, I don't know, we, but it fizzled out anyway for some reason. I don't know. It wasn't anything dramatic at all. Um, yeah, and then I, I guess he, he went off wherever he went off. I didn't see him for ve- decades, actually. Because um, I say we did, you know, sort of fall out. So um, yes, that yeah. often takes decades to cope with that that kind of hurt and yeah. confusion. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, was, no, no, no. I'm, um, you know, he's, he's a nice bloke and everything. But um, anyway, so yeah, so but and, and very important to me and Phil, you know, and Alison, you know, uh, we wouldn't have because you know after that we didn't know what to do with ourselves, you know, because. Um, I'd been writing or trying to write songs for about three and a half years, and I didn't. I had nothing to write about, you know, or I thought I didn't. I, I just didn't. I couldn't write lyrics, you know. Um, some of the music has had good ideas in it, you know, and the melodies and things. But the old line was all right. But um, anyway, they were Alison and Phil were impressed enough, um, and you know, the old story. Uh, one day the light bulb went on. I thought, well. You know, we can't find another band to join. Why don't we, form, you know, form our own band and do, and I'll write the songs. And they literally came around to see me and said, "Oh, we've got this idea," and it was the same idea, you know. Fantastic. So, yeah. So I mean, you know, these things—it's like a lot of things. They're really blindingly obvious, but you have to think of them first, you know. <laughs> well, I guess sometimes you need to have someone who's got the baton or the kind of the leadership, certain leadership skills. And I guess yeah. when Matthew left, it probably felt like, can we get someone else to lead us? And then that moment. Yeah, brought... yeah. And also, I think we, we weren't thinking about doing anything other than covers, really. We just wanted to be in a band of some sort, you know. Yes, but you're right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yes. Yeah. And then... And I ended up... I ended up being the manager, you know, although that was never said or thought even, but that's what I was, yeah. It does happen, doesn't it? I think it happened to Robert Lloyd from the Nightingales. He he probably took over the management of the band, didn't he? And then form a record label, which was amazing. But look, then, so how does the band then sort of progress to the next level? Because obviously this is kind of 78, so... 79 times so punk had sort of had its moment hadn't it and then we were getting into that post-punk period with people like public image limited and magazine and gang of four and and such like and Mm. pair long before long before public image actually was it i think public image was yeah public image was like 81 i think wasn't it oh i don't know i don't don't think it was 78 79 because the sex pistols were before I just, I must admit, I, I, I don't know. I just watched this documentary on um, Amazon Prime with the band, which made me sort of, um, I wonder, yeah, I suppose appreciate them a bit more, really, because, you know, they were quite, I mean, they were so many junkies, though, that it was never going to work, was it? I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't, didn't impress me. I mean, the pistols didn't impress me either, actually. I met John Lynn once, that's another story. Yeah, so what happened with the band? Well, yes. Um, 
So, well, you know, uh, for me, it was a matter of extreme urgency because having realized this was what I wanted to do in my life, I felt at 24, I was knocking on a bit, you know, um, for rock and roll. Yes, and it was. It was being, time was ticking by. Being, you know, yeah, and being in Cardiff, nobody gave flying shit about Cardiff and the music business, you know, it's, it, about Wales even. And I, you know, there wasn't an option to become Tom Jones or anything like that, you know. So, um, and we had never, you know, none of us had written any songs of any that were any good. We, I, we weren't good. Phil and I were, you know, obviously musical, and um, had the, you know, I had the ingredients, I suppose, to songwrite, but not not the material in terms of lyrics. So, and, you know, we're just surrounded by people who are great guitarists and everything. And you just think, well, the hell, you know, how am I going to do this? And um, basically Phil and I did the music, but uh, we sort of sat down and talked about it, you know. And I'd be, when I was in art college, I'd spent most of the time, I'd chosen a really stupid course, you know. I don't know why I did it, really. I'd chosen interior design. Oh, I didn't, uh, I should, I didn't, I didn't see that one coming, actually. No, um, I don't know why I did that. I think I was trying to please my dad. My dad was a master carpenter, right? And, and I, I just thought, you know, I'm drifting around here. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing anything that he's going to be very happy about. And not that he ever complained or pressured me or anything. I just felt I should do something that would cheer him up a bit. So I did that, and I spent all my time in the art college um, library which is brilliant and I loved minimalism you know and I think with, I didn't you know I'm going to be saying this a lot but I didn't make the mental connection but I was minimalism was I said to Phil let's let's do minimal music you know it's, you know there is something sexy isn't there about minimalism anyway so so that was the one major thing and then and also he and I you know we both had similar prejudices which is lovely you know, so we, all the stuff we hated in, in music, we just decided to fuck all that, scrap it, you know. We're not having any of that, you know. And we're going to just, um, we're just going it, to, it, it's a very Cardiffian thing, this, which is in Cardiff. Cardiff is historically a very difficult gig. The audiences, have, um, they're not demanding, but they want the meat and potatoes, you know. They don't want any mucking about. Right. You know, they want the goods, you know. So, I, so we sort of said, right, let's, let's, let's just give people the goods. We need a rhythm. We need great riffs. We need good songs, you know. Um, and I, I, I happened to buy a cheesy old electric organ at one point, which was a bit of a laugh, really. Um, but we were into stuff like Booker T and the MGs and all that stack stuff and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So so that's really, those are the elements that... Uh, and then the major thing for me, and I've only realised this in recent years, was that I sort of did an out-of-body thing in a way. I I thought, I can't, I can't, you know, I don't know how to do this. It's got to be brilliant to get us noticed and to get me, you know, starting my career mm -hmm. as a musician, as a songwriter. This is such a massive ask. What I'll do is I'll write for an imaginary band. So... And having, not having to sing my material and having it sung by a female was two stages away as well. You know, so it really freed me up. Yes. So I wrote Searching for Mr. Right, you know. 
I mean, really what I was saying is I'm searching for Mrs. Wright, you know, but you can't do that, can you? So, so you know, so I, it all just fell into place like that, really. I, it's all tacit. We never talked to each other about anything. Never, never heard of band meetings or anything like that. So, so that's how it started off, you know, and it was a fantastic year. And I said, you know, this isn't, you know, the chances of this working are so tiny. It's, you know, it's probably a complete waste of time. Um, so I'm giving it till Christmas. Uh, you know, 79. Yes. And, and then I might just go and live in Berlin or something because I quite fancy that. And, um, and we had a great time writing this stuff. And I was working in Virgin Records in the city centre. And I had the brainwave, well, uh, this music's, a, you know, it's, it's kind of challenging for a, an average Cardiffian music lover because it's all sort of status quo and yes and, you know, whatever. Uh, it's a bit too challenging. We're going to get, you know, it's a heavy city. We're going to get beaten up, you know. <laughs> So, so, uh, so I think what we'll do is I'll make thirty cassettes. Um, I'd never heard of anyone doing this before, and uh, and through the shop they very kindly let me create a poster, put it on the wall, and sell the cassettes. So that's what I did, and then we knew we'd have at least some people who might want to come and see us. Excellent. And it worked. In fact, one week they said, "Oh, um, Richard's coming." visiting, you know, Richard Branson. He's coming down on Sunday. We're doing a stock check or something. I thought, right, I'll give him the cassette. So I did, yeah. N- nothing happened. But then, <laughs> yes, but you're hustling. This is good. So then, did you get all the material written during that period before you went, yeah. kind of, and then booked the studio to say, right, this is it. We've got five days. We're going to absolutely go for it. Well, what happened was, I said, let's do an hour of music. That's more than enough for an album, a single, and a, and, a, and a live set. So everything was minimal, you know. It was like, let's not waste any time. Let's just do this thing. It's not going to work anyway. Um, and then a chap called, well, a band called Reptile Ranch, which was a, a band that moved to Cardiff from the valleys above Newport. And the main guy was a guy called Spike, Spike Williams, who's worked with Allison a lot, of course. He... he they were much more up on what was going on in the wider world and they knew about Spiral Scratch and they knew about Rough Trade and the indie thing and they were political, you know, and all that, lefties and everything. And, and um, we, there was, you know, where are we going to play anyway? You know, that's the other thing. We can't go and play these pubs and clubs. We will get battered to death, you know. So there was this sort of, I don't know how we found it, there was this little council-run youth club called Grassroots and we, you know, we went there. We had one person. I think it was my our mum who was our roadie on the first gig. And then the second gig, we had seven people, and Spike was one of them. Right. And he became our first, and still is a mega fan, you know. And he, there were other people were doing the same thing. Other groups and acts were playing there because anyone could just go and play there. And um, Spike and his mates in some in Reptile Ranch got it together to hire an eight-track and a desk, and they knew someone who could record. And they did this comp- compilation. It was, I think, the second DIY compilation after Spiral Scratch. It was called Is the War Over? And we were on it, and they went to Rough Trade to get it you know, distributed, or get, yeah, get it distributed. 
and um, came back and said, oh, um, Jeff Travis wants to talk to you. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so I literally went to the laundrette with a few tuppenny bits in the, in the public phone and rang up Rough Trade, and that's how it started. Then we went to Rough Trade one day, and uh, Jeff said, what do you want to do? And I thought, what do we want to do? Oh, oh, right. Uh, fuck, really? I said, I think we want to go and have a cup of tea, don't we, Phil? Don't we, Al? Um, yeah, okay. So we went around the corner, and I said, we've got to do an album. This is our chance. And they were like, no, no, no. No, it'll cost too much money, and, you know, it's too pushy. And I said, we've got to do an album. It usually did have to force things through. Um, but we went back, and Jeff said, okay, and he booked us in. And I knew it would take five days. Um and it did, and uh, and that was that. Blimey! So you you did this 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 the uh, the studio you used was in was it North Wales with um... yeah, Dave Anderson's studio. It's called Voile, F O E L. It's still there actually. Right. It's, um, yeah, that's a really interesting story. But um, it was a, it's a, a farm, beautiful location on this beautiful green valley, which is about at least a mile across. Quite a shallow valley, but um, all very rural and gorgeous. And uh, he had a cottage there where we stayed, and he had a stone barn, and that was the recording studio, you know. And it was all 70s um, methods, you know. It was all sort of um, one big room with a control room up in the top. Was it at all like Was it at all like Rockfield's studio? Was it quite different? I don't I've never been there. I don't know. Fair enough. It's a farm in yeah. in in sort of yeah. I, the I, way... I know it's in Monmouth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I just no, wanna... I, I've never been there. I mean, it was it was he he built it all and everything. He was he's he's a, an amazing guy. He was in Hawkwind and Amandul and all these bands as a bass player. Um, and he first he was an old rocker, you know, uh, but he was well into the. Ganja, and uh, so we loved that, you know. So he must um, have been. Was he, he a bit of a space, a psychedelic space cadet who'd done lots of LSD? And um... I, 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 I think he'd been around a lot of people like that. He certainly had the best stories. I'll, I'll tell you one in a minute. But um, <laughs> but he was he's a Scot and very you know canny, uh, but a lovely guy, a great friend. I love the man. You know, we all do. And and he he had no ego at all. He we went in there and he saw that it was a new idea, a new thing, you know, and he, and he didn't get in the way. He just, he didn't say, oh, I think you ought to you know, put two vocals on that or anything. He just, we did it live. That's why it, I knew it would take no, no time at all. So, you know, <clears throat> we just did our thing. Alison sang. We were all behind screens, you know, um, separated by baffles or whatever. And you can, you know, on the actual master, the, the mix, the um, multi-tracks, you can hear spill. You, know, you can hear Alison. You can hear the guitars in Alison's track. You know, and we only used four tracks, obviously. You know, yes, uh, it was a sixteen-track machine, but you know, we only used four tracks at maximum. So, um, so just, um, I mean, on on some of the songs, which is, you know, obviously have become such a kind of iconic kind of classics. What was the process and, and moment that you sort of wrote Brand New Life? Because that's obviously one that um, still sounds incredible 42 years later, or 43, I suppose. Oh, thank you. Mm. It, well, it's, you know, it, as I say, we're into riffs, you know, and uh, so that, that, that riff, 
dun, 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 dun. I just I just wrote it on the guitar. One of the reasons, one of the things about what I, you know, because that, that was another big issue. How? What am I going to do about being an impressive guitar player? You know, because <laughs> I don't know much. I really didn't. I, you know, I bought a Rickenbacker, which, you know, I don't know if you know about these things, but they, they, some of them anyway, are famous for having very highly um, varnished fingerboards very long fingerboards you get an extra two frets uh with great access because the body is cut away so you can get your hand right up to the high notes and also they're very thin necks if you view them from above so they're very fast in short your hand can whack up and down so i use the little bar chords um and or power chords as they're more sexually called <laughs> so a lot of that a lot of that stuff is either bar chords um, or I'm playing, you know, just two or three strings at a time, not necessarily fingered, maybe two fingered and one open string or something. Um, these are just things that I've made up, really. Uh, I think the instrument, and this, I think this is true um, for everybody in a way, the, the instrument dictates, in fact, almost writes the music. And, it, and if it's a good instrument, it doesn't get in the way of your whatever talent you've got, you know, so I had a good instrument, and um, I had a very particular one. It was very trebly, and I don't know why. I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I didn't know about tuning or anything. And I, I bought a, a very hard uh, serrated plectrum, and I, you know, and I, I obviously heard the cars, for instance, doing oh, that yes. muted, chunky guitar sound. And I thought, oh, I'll use that. So it's all. It was all. I mean, my whole life really. I don't know if it's my personality or what, but I'm, things just come to me. I do them, and they seem to work. I'm a very lucky man, you know. Mm. Yes, and, um, and so so on that on the, on that front, you do then write Final Day as well, which is another one of those kind of um, incredibly beautiful because it's so short, but it's so concise. How did this one? Mm. I know I'm just curious, aren't I? Um, but yes, it is. No, 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 no it, it's, it's just kind of. Yeah. Uh, Interesting, because you think, wow, that's that is quite incredible atmosphere you've created, and then it's so short as well, and it sort of leaves you feeling sort of slightly like, oh, discombobulated. Well, the the way that came about was unique in my experience, because um, having done our hour of music and everything, um, and the record, the album had come out, the instrumental EP had come out, and the single had come out. Oh, sorry, no, we, the single, we, what happened was that Jeff rang me up one day and said, oh, Stuart, do you think you could write something for a single? And I was kind of anticipating this question by then and thinking, wow, I remember reading that Sting uh, uh, had been writing a new album and all the pressing plants in the world were, were waiting for him to finish writing it. I was thinking, what must that be like? You know. So this is my equivalent. You know. I, I said to Jeff, well, I'll have a go, you know. And of course, it was fantastic to be asked by Jeff Travis to write a song, you know. Yes. And uh, it, lyrically, it was kind of inspired by um, Ian Fleming, one of Ian Fleming's books. I think it's Casino Royale. Um, and and also by that infamous government film, you know, uh, Protect and Survive or whatever it was called, you know, Um that about nuclear war yes no that's right oh god yeah so and it was just imagination other than that musically i can't really explain it in fact it's hilarious now because 
in Lyon, um, Louis said to me, I was supporting Louis and his band, or, you know, the band, um, the, night, the Night Train. The Night Train, yeah. And they had a, a four-piece French, four-piece string quartet as well. And he said, can we do Final Day as our encore? And I said, of course, you know. And so we rehearsed it, got the string quartet doing the that drone. Um, and in the rehearsals, I mean, I'd watched them rehearsing, which was great fun. And so I, I got my guitar out and I started doing this incredibly staccato, choppy thing. And the string quartet were looking at each other and going, it's so, you know. And I just said, yeah, that, that's post-punk right there. You know, it's really angular and um, kind of angry, that song, you know. Uh, Had you sort of listened yeah. to Keith Levine by then? Or... No, 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 I hadn't. Um, no, I didn't really. I mean, I'm terrible. I don't like much music, you know. I, I you know, this, this, as I say, it's a central thing about what we were doing. Was we just, there's so much rubbish. I, I agree with George Bernard Shaw, you know, 80% of anything is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Harsh but true. <laughs> yes there you so, go yeah so and that was a, you know that's a huge influence if you think that and you believe that then you've got to be part of the 20 percent you know and, yes. and to be part of the 20 percent you've got to be using influenced by the 20 percent you know yes there you go and, and we took it to the to the max and, and didn't have any protection at all you know we you know musically and but yet still i could never figure out you know, we could none of us understand. We loved it, obviously, but we used to have such incredible love, especially when we reformed um, in 2007 and we did eight years of a couple of gigs a year. Um, and, and it was just overwhelming, the love, you know, whether it was London or Paris or Berlin, wherever it was. And one day, I, in fact, it was after our last gig at the World Festival Hall, um, the next morning, I went down to the hotel lobby, and Alison's husband was there uh, on his own, um, as it happened. And we just had a cup of coffee, and I said, "Pete, what? What is it? You know, what is so? This is amazing love for the band, you know." And he said, "Oh, well, your music works operates on the level of the heart." And I, you know, I didn't know that, you know. Um, and I thought, "Wow, that's that's so cool." Yes, you know, that's amazing. But I didn't know that, you know. The thing about being an artist, um, if I may pontificate any more, mm-hmm. is that is that you cannot be objective about what you've made because you've made it. It's, it's a bit like building a mask from the inside. You know, you know what you want to achieve, but you can never see it, and you just have to sort of put it out there. Yes, is it is it the case then as well as when you've made it? Do you sort of almost not want to listen to it? for a while because it's just you've had to live it so much you know a bit like I don't know I know when Pete you know I remember writing dissertations or essays and stuff and you know you work on this thing for absolutely months probably and then you you never read it again or you I don't know it's right. yeah, yeah I mean and and then yeah. decades later you find it and you start reading it and you think god yeah I've, I you know I, I couldn't um couldn't bear this you know I couldn't bear to read it after it kind of been let you know You've hit yeah, sin. I think it's, it's a similar thing for me is is that um, I absolutely love it until it becomes public and then I can't bear it because it's just a, such an embarrassing um, exposure, you know. 
Yeah. And, and in fact, I know that Phil in particular has found it really, really hard to accept the, the um, response, you know, that, that the music has had. You know, he just, he just couldn't, he was in denial for a very long time about it. But it, ultimately, it was just, you could not deny it. You know, I mean, it was just... Um, yeah, because it does have this so kind of bizarre life. But once you've made it, then decades later, you start getting all these people kind of mentioning it from, you know, I don't know, I suppose people like Kurt Cobain must have slightly melted yeah. your brain, really, when he sort of mentioned the love of the band and, you know, people covering material from it as well. Yes, yeah. Well, it kind of it had its initial. I mean, you know, the reviews at the time were to die for. You know, I mean, just amazing, and um, and and it and it did so really well. And uh, you know, we did our seven months of gigs, and then that was it. It was all done and dusted, and it carried on selling. I mean, I I didn't know if I was going to make any more money out of it, and it just kept. You know, sending me royalties. Yes. And then, and then we were, and then it was bought up by somebody else. You know, Cracker School in, in Belgium, and then eventually it went on to Domino. You know, and uh, it's still, still going strong. It's still good. So why, why did you break up at this, this kind of stage when, when, you know, you're still in the honeymoon phase because most bands have about five years before they, they get to that stage. But that's often after a lot of, you know, the tricky second, third album and yeah. just being in each other's pockets and feeling a bit yeah. like, actually, this this is not much fun anymore. But it's, you, you're still early days and everything has just gone so beautifully well. The stars lined up and it was like, fantastic. Second album, mind, get yeah. out of the way, yeah. sting. We've got yeah. someone else who wants to release the next album. Well, as I say, we start, I started off thinking it's going to fail. So we just weren't prepared for success at all. You know, and we didn't know anybody who'd succeeded. We had no, no one to mentor us at all, no manager. Um, Phil and Alison were a couple. Um, I usually had Wendy uh, on tour with us as well. She came on tour with us, my girlfriend. So it was actually two couples touring. Um, and it's, uh, we didn't communicate with each other. We never did. So that was deadly, you know, because no, nothing's being said. So I mean, there are stresses and strains, you know, it's, and this is the oldest story in the world, but, you know, fame is a very corrosive thing. It's a monster. You, and I'll give you one example. Very early gig, we went to play in, uh, Hammersmith. It's now the Coca-Cola building on the roundabout there. Um, oh, what's it called? Beginning to see. Anyway, I can't remember. It's a famous venue there. It used to be there. And we, you know, we were still in our very early stages. And we were like, we're not doing all these conventional things. We're not doing encores. You know, why do, why do bands hide in the dressing room? Let's, let's go out and get the, get the vibe and have a drink. You know? So we went out into the, or into the you know, the, the room the Clarendon, it was called, that's it, oh, yeah. and the Smith Broadway. We went out into, you know, with all these, the punters and everything, and we'd, we'd just been, I think we were on the front of sounds um, around that time, so people knew our faces, and they knew our faces from the record cover, which incidentally, you'll notice, is the only one that had us on it. Um, 
having having once achieved that, no need to do it again. So anyway, we went out in the crowd, and of course, people knew it was us, you know, and it was very unpleasant in the sense that people are all looking at you, which never happens normally, does it? You know, people don't look at you in en masse. No. And, and you can tell they can't see you. They can't see you. It's like you're being misunderstood. I and mean, there's nothing worse than being misunderstood. So I said, Christ, this is awful. Let's, let's get back quick, get back in the dressing room. So we started squeezing ourselves between all these people who's, you know, and this one guy, he was like, I was like the last to go in. Phil was in front of me. And uh, he said to Phil, no, that's right. He had this, exactly the same haircut as Phil, which nobody else in the world had at the time. It was like the number one cut with two little um, greased sort of matchsticks at the top of the front. He had this, this guy had Phil's haircut. And I looked at him and he said, I've got your shoes. And I looked at him and he had my DMs on. I hadn't even realized I'd lost them. <laughs> and I thought, this, that's it. We never did that again, you know. So... So you become, you are something for everybody else. You don't know what you are for them. Yes. And they can't, they can't see you. They don't want to see you. And that is schizophrenia-inducing. It's awful. I mean, it sells records, but bollocks to it otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. That is strange. So then did you have a moment where you just sat down and just said... We're not doing the second album. Did you, you know, no, when you signed... We talk to each other. That would involve talking to each other. No, we didn't. No, no, there was no talk of a second album, ever. I mean, we, we did literally, it was one year, you know. We started our gigs in May of 1980 and we finished in November. Seven months. The band was active, really, after the record came out. Seven months. Yes. Three tours. One of, one of Europe, one of England, one of America. And, um, and we're kind of, you know, like Ralph and Gay said, we're all sensitive people. And um, it just it was horrible, you know. And he also was smoking vast quantities of marijuana, which really didn't help. Yes. Um, no, what happened was we had the last two gigs of that American tour were in New York in a club called Hurrah. And in 1980, you know, New York was a pretty fucking wasted place and it's really decadent. And we're good church Welsh boys, you know, brought up nicely. And this was like, what the fuck? This is like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. <laughs> and, um, and if you look at the, I can't bear watching this, we're so miserable. You, you would never ask again why we split up if you watched that video or that DVD of our last gig. In, it's a compilation of the two nights. In, all of us are like stone-faced, wanting to get over and done. With. The, the, the songs are actually shorter than, even than they were on the record. And we just wanted to get away from it completely. And I said something like, oh, welcome to the first, uh, uh, the last gig before our first reunion tour. And I, I didn't know I was going to say it. I don't know why I said it. I didn't know what it meant. But, it, you know, it, as far as the group was concerned, that was it. I, I'd announced that we would finished. And I now realise that we were miserable, you know, and... Phil and Alison broke up as we arrived in America on that tour. And so it was people, we were all unhappy. And it had all come very easily as well. So it didn't seem like, you know, it, you know, it, do you know what I mean? Easy come, easy go. Sort of yes. And, and that was that. It, 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 I think I was acting as a lightning rod, really. 
I think it would have happened anyway if, if I hadn't said something. Yeah. God, that's so, that is such a strange kind of narrative, isn't it? But then you pick yourself up and you form a band, you know, in the early 80s. Because actually you would have probably, the, the young Marble Giants, because indie pop, you know, starts to sort of really sort of get going towards the early 80s and obviously 83 is when the Smiths form and, you know, there's a whole period mm. of that. I mean, you, you would have been right there, wouldn't you? You'd have been... Certain. Yeah, I mean, if we kept, if we kept, if we instead, I, if I just thought about it, but I wasn't, I had no experience of this. I wasn't really a manager, but you needed a manager. A manager, a good manager would have said, right, okay, take three months off, you know, do whatever you want to do, you know, have yeah. a holiday. And then, you know, and, and, and let's have a meeting, you know, and let's talk about things and see what everyone, where they're at and what they want to do. And we could have been, massive you know we could have been multi-millionaires and um died on the toilet like Elvis you know I know 15 years ago <laughs> this is true but then but then you you form a band with your brother so obviously you know how did this kind of start how did it how did what, the conversation what you mean the gist yes well the gist I started the gist as an imaginary band in 1979 before the before the Beatles before the um, young marbles <laughs> even got going you know, before we'd even signed to Rough Trade, I was making up fake record sleeves and stuff. Um, because I'm a, man, a words man, and I just loved the name The Gist. I thought, what a great name for a band, you know. And um, I mocked up this record sleeve, and that's the end of that. You know, it had a title, but there was no song to go with it. But then when things started getting iffy, I said to Jeff, I've got this idea to do this thing called The Gist. And he said, great. He actually said to me, Stuart, we've all got great faith in anything you do, which is lovely. He's a bit like a father figure to me, actually. Jeff. Yes. So that gave me the green light. And um, in fact, the last sessions, going back to full studio again, we did the um, uh, the test card EP, and I did some other tracks, We um, and they were sort of, it was like, should this be the Young Marble Giants? And Phil said no. Phil was always the one who had the ultimate decision on things. You know, so I'd play him a song and he'd go, in the, when we were doing the Young Marbles, and he'd go, nah, and I'd go, yeah, you're right. And then he'd go, yeah, okay, and he'd get his bass out, you know. So he was the one who was the arbiter of taste, really, in a way. And so, so that last session at Fold became um, the beginning of the gist. So there's a, sort of about eight songs and I think one single came from it originally, or maybe two, and the rest has all just come out recently in the last couple of years on these two gist albums I've just done. So, but the gist was really just me, uh, in, partly because um, the plane landed after New York at Heathrow, and Phil Legg from Essential Logic, who I'd met and Bobby well, all met because we supported them. Um, on a gig once, he he was a friendly guy, and he came up to me and said, "Oh, uh, do you want a squat? We've got a room going in a squat in London." I was like, "Great!" So that became the next chapter in my life, and I would, you know, I got a motorbike and uh, I went up to see Wendy. She was in Nottingham, and I'd never been on this route before. And the motorbike was, although it was the new one, it was it was a Eastern European 
thing, which wasn't really didn't really handle very well, but the tires weren't very good, you know, cheap sort of Eastern European rubbish. And um, I don't know what happened, but uh, I woke up in hospital. Oh my god! Yeah, and I was, you know, discovered that what had happened was I was. In, it sounds like a Smith song, but I was bleeding to death in a hedge. You know, I'd lost four pints of blood. Um, cracked shoulder blade, punctured lungs. Uh, but the worst thing was I'd completely broken my left shin and the bone had come out and, and it was covered in grass and earth and everything. So it's quite complicated. Oh, thing. God. Yeah. I know, the bike was a complete write-off. My guitar was all smashed up. and everything. I never saw the guitar or the bike again. So I sort of came around in the hospital um, and... While I was in there for that week, the squat was evicted, so I had nowhere to live either. You know, so it wasn't a very happy time, really. No. But anyway, so so uh, Wendy said, "Well, you know, come and stay with me, you know, uh, in in the, her flat." And she was just finishing her degree uh, in art at Nottingham, and uh, she because she'd come with us to America in those days, she just got given a work permit for, for life. She had a visa for life to work in America, which I, none of us had, but she did. Anyway, so she she left, um, and I stayed in the flat in, in Nottingham. And um, Phil had rescued all my gear, my, my possessions, from my room in the squat. And that included a four-track and desk and some gear and these instruments and hi-fi and stuff, and brought it up to me. And, you know, I was on crutches for a year. Um I didn't know anybody. I was on my own. I didn't know nothing. Might as well have been in Mars, you know. Um, so I got on with um, recording. Winded answer, but that's how I started the gist. And I mean, Phil would come up and visit, and, we, and Lewis Mottram came up and visited, and Spike came up, you know. And so there were a few people involved. Like Wendy sang one thing for me, but it's basically a solo thing, really. I was, you know. I, I had no real plan at all, no musical vision at all at that point. It's the exact opposite of Young Marble Giants, you know. Phil and I basically are still fallen out, you know, uh, over the split-up of Young Marble Giants. Um, uh, so, you know, it wasn't... I didn't have Phil around as my absolutely ideal, you know, musical writing partner anymore. Um, I was, you know, still smoking tons of marijuana taking LSD because I was bored stiff um, on crutches you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rock and roll was terrible um, yeah so uh, I was really just working out how to sort of try and make music by multi-tracking that's what that's what Embrace the Herd was you know that's, that's the beginning and end of it really yes um, fortunate, fortunately I wrote Love at First Sight which rescued the album um, and uh, yeah, and then uh, Jeff, to my amazement, was happy to put it out, and uh, that's how that—that's what that was. Really, that was it. You know, so and, uh, yes. So what happens for you with you for the rest of the decade before your your sort of solo albums start to kind of appear? You've done your research, haven't you? I'm loving that. Um, <laughs> well, what happened was that I blew it massively with rough trade and it's so embarrassing um and they also uh they also changed their business model you know instead of having like 400 bands with two little singles each they thought 
no, let's just have a couple of bands, you know, and they chose the Smiths, who can blame them, and they did a great job. Um, so uh, there were a number of things that went on. Um, one of them was that um, uh, I was, you know, I didn't want to live in Nottingham anymore. Um, I was, I was, I think, basically going through a slow motion breakdown, quite honestly. And Jeff offered to basically set up a mortgage and pay a deposit on a, on a property so that I had the stability of somewhere to live. And instead of doing what my heart desired, which was possible then, and I should have done, I regret not doing, which was just buying a loft somewhere like Borough and mm. living there. Um, I, I just moved to, I just bought this... Um, detached house so I can make, make music in it in, in a little mining village a very uh, um, Laurentian in actually near where Lawrence used to live in, in the coal fields of Derbyshire in a little village there a little town there it was a really depressing place it was horrible I hated it um, so I was out of my head you know I was completely out of my head and it didn't last very long and in the end I just moved back to Cardiff Yes, and I, I had I, I I I still had you know this connection with Rough Trade, but um, I, I just felt like the just that just album. I just it, I just felt terrible about it. I thought you know I I just I didn't like it. You know I mean like, there's good stuff on it and the single was good and whatever. But I just I don't know. I just felt like I'd let myself down or something. I don't know. And um, so. I sort of hunkered down and I knew I was in for a very long haul, you know, to try and find a way to do music that, that I felt happy with. And it's only really started to happen, uh, you know, I don't know, since when. It started to happen slowly. It's sort of very, very, very slowly improved from that point onwards, really, from about 82. Um... I then lived in a house with my younger brother, Andrew, and a friend of his, who's a brilliant musician called Anthony Silvestros. And um, so it just became a trio in Cardiff. We did gigs and we recorded, you know. And I spent my whole time in that house, uh, in, a, in a room set up to record. And, and I didn't, I stopped doing demo, you know, just sort of putting ideas down and sketches. And, and everything I did, I did in my studio. And I've pretty much done that ever since. So, um, so I started just compiling all these recordings, really. Um, and then one day I met this beautiful girl and fell madly in love. And we moved to London. And um, I got a job with Walt Disney on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And uh, we lived on the narrow boats in Rickmansworth and. Uh, we got married and had three children and uh, moved to this part of the world and got divorced. And I'm now living here. I have a studio down the road and um, I've got a record deal with John Henderson. I mean, I met him in 92 when we were living on the narrowboat through a contact we'd met in, made in America. Um, My God. Because what happened was, yeah, after, the, after that, Embrace the Herd thing and the Cardiff thing. Um, I, I moved to, you know, Cindy, my ex-wife, and I moved to London. 
I mean, this was like the peak of Thatcherism, you know, the peak of greed, late 80s. And we, we bought a flat in the most southwesterly part of London imaginable, um, almost in Morden. Hello? Hello. Yeah, I'm still... Oh, yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, and it was like 46 grand, which is a huge amount of money at the time. Um, and uh, Cindy, bless her, is, you know, very aspirational and also quite, um, what's the word for it? Uh, changes her mind quite a lot. Um, and she said, oh, you know, we've been there 18 months and it was really comfy and nice. And she said, oh, I can't stand this. It's so boring here, you know. I'm mean, doing this huge commute into London, and she was right actually. But at the time, I thought, "Oh, I can't, I can't hack all this constant, you know, capriciousness." That's the word. So I said, "Okay, well, look, neither of us needs the money from this sale of this flat if we sell it. Let's just stay together as a couple, but not live together." Both had jobs we wanted, we aspired to get. Everything was going great in London, you know. So. I said, I've got a plan. And she said, oh, great, what is it? I said, well, let's keep the money in one place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, where? I said, well, I, I would like to buy a narrowboat and live on a narrowboat. And uh, and she's, this is typical of her. She's very organized. She brought out a bit of paper and she said, I've written down all the things I wanted here and I didn't think I'd get half of them, what I want to do in the future. And it ticks all the boxes. So we stayed together. We lived on this beautiful farm. We had our own mooring, organic vegetable garden. Lived on this river for four years, five winters. It was. It, I'd still be there. It was idyllic, you know. It was lovely. Yes. We commuted in and out on, on the Metropolitan Line. So um, anyway, in '92, which is sort of the last year that we were full year that we were there, this chap. I, I was trying to get. I, I what I what had happened was while I was working on. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I had another little motorcycle mishap and I had a leg in uh, half my lower leg and the other leg in plaster. And um, so I couldn't go to work. You know, I didn't want to risk going on this huge commute on the train and the underground and everything. And they said, oh, that's fine. We'll just send you a bit of work every now and again. <clears throat> so fine. So I did that and I hired out an eight track in the desk and I recorded a load of songs and made an album and then I you know rough trade you know we sort of they were not interested and uh it was very difficult you know to try and get you know money at this point so I was trying to get this album made and some Mike Appelstein must have rung up or something this is the guy we'd met in America in 1980 he said oh you should bring John Henderson in Chicago you know he's got a label he'd love to do something so I did and it ended up going he going over there. He paid for me to go over there in ninety two, ninety three, and ninety four for about two months each time, you know, which was great. I earned money, toured, produced other people records, you know, it was brilliant. So what was um, this? So, what, so what was that label you were on? Because you did two, you know, the early nineties. You did Signal Path, and then yeah, that was Signal Path was that album, and that was on Feel Good. All over records, I believe. I should know, shouldn't I? Um, where is it? It's showing right here. Yes, it was on Feel Good All Over, which is John's label in Chicago. Blimey. So that's how that record came about. 
And what was your what yeah. was your part in not part, but what was your contribution in Roger Rabbit? That's that was slightly kind oh, of Oh, I was I was um you know, uh, I was a cell painter, so absolutely bottom of the ladder. Um yeah. I was a cell painter. You were painting, yes. Coloured the coloured the characters in, yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I, I'm with you now. Yes, so blimey. So was at this stage was Cindy with you on this journey at this this kind of album signal path, or was and were you still on the narrowboat? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think she ever really got. <laughs> in fact, I know she didn't really get me. She didn't really get the whole importance of music to me, you know, I don't know what she thought about it really. Again, it was a non-communicative relationship, but, um, um, but yeah, we were together and, um, in fact, we got married that year. We got married on the 4th of April, 92, um, because, uh, we were expecting our daughter as it turned out. Um, yeah. Uh, so, we were very much together, actually, at that time. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, went back the following two years. And, and then John sort of disappeared off everybody's radar. Nobody you know, in America knew what he was up to, where he was or anything. So there was this... Then I was going to people like Vinyl Japan and um, Ryko Disc and, you know, people like that, you know, mm. uh, every now and again to put something out. So, you know, they give you two grand up front and the record would disappear from view, you know. But at least you'd got it out, you know. Um, and that was the kind of, that was the way... Did you uh, did you ever you find know, out I, what happened to John in the end? Oh, very much so. What what happened was by about 2015, I think it was, you know, I had, I don't know how many songs. Uh, and I was still writing a lot. And it just seemed completely futile really and I was going to give up um, the unthinkable and I thought I wonder I wonder where John is and Facebook had come along and I thought I'd just put his name in Facebook and there he was and he was in Budapest with his partner uh, Gabby so I got in touch with him I, I think what had happened was I was just about to do a gist album called Let's Gist Again <laughs> um, snappy title eh? yes. and uh I think I've been talking about it on Facebook or something because once we'd got in touch, he must have checked my Facebook page and he said, don't do that. Don't throw it away on Bandcamp. You know, let's talk about it. So we had, the, you know, we always have massive conversations on the phone and uh, it ended up with him saying, well, Stuart, how many songs have you got? I said, John, I don't know. You know, I'm, I don't know. I'm 30, 40, 50. And he said, well, why don't you come over to Budapest, you know, and bring all your tapes and everything with you. So by now I was with my partner, Mary, and uh, we both went over to visit him and Gabby. And uh, it turned out it was four hours of music. So he has got all that stuff from my archives. And um, since then, you know, he's been listening to it and, you know, he's a brilliant man. And don't say that lightly, he's an absolutely brilliant man in many, many ways, massive heart. And uh, he's a massive fan and he has came up with this business model because he's American, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he's very good at doing deals and stuff. He said, this is what, this is what I think. He said, 
people know you from Young Marble Giants and the Gist first album in 82, and they don't really know anything. Most people don't know anything about the other things that you've done because they weren't, didn't make much impact, you know, on those little labels. Mm-hmm. What, what I think we should do is the music that you made in 82, 83, you know, after the Embrace the Herd stuff, when you moved back to Cardiff, let's, there's enough there for two albums. Let's, I'm going to put together two albums of this stuff and we'll make the covers look like Embrace the Herd so that it triggers memories and people think, oh, it's that guy, you know. And and that's what we did. And um, at the moment, uh, we're just about this year, we're going to release the last of the archival albums. It's called Fabstract. And it's all unreleased material from right from the Young Marble Giants. Yes, there is a Young Marble Giants song that no one's ever heard, which mm-hmm. I discovered on a cassette recently. Not a song, it's instrumental. So that, you're the first person in the world to know that. Excellent. That's you, a John. Thank you. A <laughs> coup. So, um, so there's that, and there's, there's you know stuff all the way up to, like, you know, probably just recently. Yeah. Is um, this on ti- Tiny Global Productions, by the way? Is tiny this, Global Productions, yeah. Is this and John's... now based in Spain. Spain, blimey, go John. Well, did you ever find out why he slightly disappeared all those decades ago? And, or did you never have that conversation? Um, I'm, I'm sure I asked him. Um, I think he just stopped doing music, because ultimately he didn't make any money out of it, you know. Um, and... John is the most fabulous storyteller in the world. His stories are always fabulous. Long and short of it was, it was the war in, um, in the Balkans was happening, you know, in the 90s. And he was watching it on CNN. And uh, there was they were following this, this beautiful woman who was an aristocratic woman, I think. And... I think her family had all been blown up or something and she was trying to escape from somewhere or other, some city and with her son and trying to get across a bridge and the Americans, you know, um, and whatever, were saying that actually the president, I think it was Clinton at the time, said, we've got to rescue this woman. We've got to send somebody in to rescue her. And they did. And uh, John had fallen in love with her. And he went to the airport and met her, and they ended up getting married. Was that Gabby? I know this sounds. No, no, this is, wasn't Gabby. This is I don't know what I can't remember what her name. Her name was quite an old-fashioned name. Mm. I can't remember what it was now. But anyway, what a, what a story, you know. But that's just typical of John. His stories are all amazing. Anyway, so so that he was busy doing that, you know, and and it didn't. It, it, she was very, 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 you know. Um, badly affected by the traumas and all the rest of it. And uh, very sadly, it's the only time I've ever known him to cry. He, he told us about it when we went to see him in Budapest. And uh, they, they had to part, you know. Um, but she was doing really well. She was, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, she became the manager of a hi-fi shop or something. And, uh, and you, know, you know, it was fine in, in that sense. So, yeah. Um, I don't know how you met or when you met Gabby, but um, she's a Venezuelan, actually. Um, 
Uh, eventually, he's he's a very you know very principled left wing guy, very highly educated, lovely guy, and of course being in Hungary, it's it's like a fascist state, really police state almost there, and uh, he rubbed the government up the wrong way because when the uh, the first load of refugees started coming out of uh, Syria and things like that. Uh, the Hungarians were just doing nothing about it. They were arriving into Budapest off the trains, and there was nothing for them at all, nothing at all, except random people volunteering. And that's how he met Gabby. She was doing that as well. And so he was sort of giving them food and telling them where the doctors were and where how to get water and all this basic stuff, you know, and being very critical of the government. And, uh, and eventually he, he, he had to leave, basically. Yes. Um, and so he... They're not, you know, it's not that easy to find a country to live in, you know. But they found Spain, and it seems to be ideal for them. So, and he's um, started doing a label again, you know, um, in Budapest. Um, and it's like the early days of the rough trade because people are just buying anything that comes out on the label now. You know, <laughs> it's doing doing really well. And in fact, I did this album with uh, my last album, with, which I did with Louis Philippe. Uh, the Devil Laughs, and it's the first record since probably Embrace the Herd to make a profit. They've actually made some money, you know, after all these decades. I know, this is good. Yeah. So, did I mean, just going back slightly, when when mm. did you get the call to say, we want to reform the band, you know, the Young Mar- Marble Giants? How did that sort oh, of... Well it, well, it wasn't a call. It was, uh, I'd been trying for 20 years. I, I was trying immediately after we got back to London, um, but you know, it was never going to happen. I tried for about 20 years, every cunning method I could. Um, but, you know, I mean, Phil didn't want to, Phil didn't want to do it. So that was that. And um, I gave up and it was a huge relief. And um, of course, when you stop looking for something, you often find it, don't you? Um I was by now divorced, living on my own in a little tiny hamlet in the countryside. Um, see my kids every other weekend and all that lark. And um, online, you know, just about in the countryside. Mm. And I'd get emails, you know, over the over the decades, people email and say, oh, what's happening with the Marvel Journey? You know, oh, nothing, you know. And uh, I got really fed up with it, you know, because there's no, nothing to say, you know, you know. And this chap in America... Um, got in touch and I just I kind of cracked and I said you know I'm absolutely certain if somebody could fund the three of us to stop doing our jobs you know for six months we we could write a fantastic album uh, and I wasn't saying if you if, if someone does that we will do it but I believe we could do it is what I was saying is my fantasy really mm. and he said oh some so and so from Sonic Youth will We'll pay for it. So right. So I got in touch initially with Alison because Phil's the difficult one. But if Alison was not into it, forget I wouldn't have to speak to Phil about it. She was up for it. So I got in touch with Phil, and of course it's money, and you know we all need money, and Phil needs money. So we agreed to do it. We actually met up in a pub in near where Phil was living at the time in Wales, um, and it was as if. You know, it was just the easiest thing in the world. We had a meal, and uh, so I said, oh, so we're all right with this, and we're all going to do an album, are we? And they went, yeah. As if it was nothing, you know. Uh, quite extraordinary. So 
I was blown away. Anyway, we tried, we did get together a few times, but it was like, I don't know, this may be just my experiences, but it's like getting back with an old lover, you know, it's just, it's just not sexy at all, you know, just couldn't do it. Right. It was, there was so much baggage and I thought naively, well, how many years have gone by? 30 years or something, 27 years have gone by. We've all been doing completely other things, all doing totally different music with different people, all listening to different stuff, you know, we, and we don't have to do anything we don't want to do. We can bring all this new stuff together, play different instruments, whatever it is, you know, how fantastic is this going to be, you know? But of course, it was as if one nanosecond had gone by since we got off the stage at Hurrah, you know, all the bad feelings there. And everyone, we all sort of stuck to our standard instruments. And in the end, I said, well, I've got some songs. Should we just, just you know, muck about with these for something to do, just to warm us up, you know, get us playing? And we did that. But it wasn't going anywhere, you know. And then... Um, incredibly, at the same time, Rough Trade, who also hadn't been in touch, but I had no reason to be in touch, they got in touch about two weeks after we had that meeting in the pub and said, oh, we're doing um, a 25th anniversary weekender. I don't suppose there's any chance that the Young Marble Giants can play, is there? And we went, okay then, yeah. It didn't come off. I think the, the rumour was that Morrissey didn't want to do it, so the whole house of cards collapsed. But because the three of us had agreed to do a gig, it was sort of a card up our sleeve. Yes. And the whole recording and writing thing wasn't working out and one of the people who'd been badgering me for ages was this French uh, I thought it was a bloke actually Marie Pierre because it had Pierre in it I thought it was a bloke and uh, she got in touch and said um, oh no it's me again um, is there any chance that you can do a gig and I said well actually so then the whole Domino thing, it all kind of came together. Domino wanted to re-release it all, and uh, that went ahead. And I said to Phil and Alice, I said, well, look, this is brilliant, you know, isn't it? Domino, what a great label. They're going to release all, everything we've done. And why don't we do a gig? We've got this gig, haven't we, we've agreed on, to launch it in Wales, in Hayon Wai, actually, at the Baskerville Hotel, which mm. inspired the Hand of the Baskervilles inspired Conan Doyle to write that. What an incredible place. If you ever get a chance, go and stay a night there. Mm. You'll be in your dreams. It's, it's like you're in a dream. It's amazing. Anyway, so the book festival was on. It turned me on, you know, books, great, literature. So off we went and we did this gig. And it was the beginning of this wave, this tsunami of love, because, of course, all our old pals from Wales, from going on 30 years ago turned up you know and it was a fantastic gig it was I think probably one of our best ever in, and it's been recorded as well um, that's another story yes. but anyway so yeah so that's, that's did that answer your question yes it did of, so um, so basically yes you and Phil you have a, do, you, do you have a nice relationship now is it kind of oh yeah because because the band's not together and then we get on fine which is great. I'd rather get on with him than not, you know. Yeah. More important than the band. Even though we, you know, even though we could be 
making money. But actually, I got heartily sick to the guts of... of um, well, there were two things, really. One was, we we did several gigs. Now, this, this woman, Mary Pierre, um, was part of this um, organisation, or this booking agency in Paris, which is run by a guy called Pascal Regis. Um... And you know he's he's another lovely guy, an, an absolute friend, and everything. And they they did all these gigs for us, great gigs, good money, you know, luxury, France, you know, it's all fantastic. And um, but the trouble was, you know, I, I was chafing because I still wanted. I still think even now, if we were on good terms, you know, we could rock the world. I, I know it. You know, there's no reason why we couldn't. Phil and I could do great stuff. You know, but. Anyway, it wasn't going to happen, and it got to the point where Phil, um, you know, I love him to death, he's my kid brother, and, you know, but he started sort of deliberately sabotaging interviews and things and pissing me off deliberately, you know, and criticising my playing and things like that, which he'd never done before. Um, and, you know, it got a bit nasty, really, and I got, you know, it got sort of heated and whatever um so i you know we had this offer from david byrne to be a bit you know in the festival hall and i said well let's do that as our last gig and go out on a high you know because um it's just it's just i for me you know i as a someone who's writing and poetry and writing songs and writing writing all the time as a creative person doing stuff that we did 30 years ago as if we've got nothing else you know, it was deadly. It was. I just got to hate doing it. You know. Yes. Um. So all that crap was going on, and so we we didn't announce it was our last gig, and we still haven't. But um, people still ask if you know when you're going to play. Um. But it, yeah, it's it's moribund. It's and, done. And but Phil and I get on fine. You know. Yeah. Because we don't. Yeah. But those reunions kind of started okay in like. 2007 and then just the occasional gig and then your last one was about 2015 and that was was that the last yeah. one yeah that's it right yeah. blimey yeah it's we didn't even get to meet david bird <laughs> oh but then your your solo work is is still happening even though it's now going to be oh. called gist which kind of runs well, off yeah, I mean, it, it, it technically, it, well, it was the gist, yeah. I mean, I did that period, sort of 81, or, yeah, 81 to about 85, yeah, to the end of 85 in Cardiff, and then basically moved to London with Cindy, and so that was sort of the end of the trio live gist and all the rest of it. So that's sort of the end of the gist, really, in a way. I did actually, and the way I define the gist is like very stoned noodling in the studio. Um, and I did a lot of that uh, later on um, in the late 90s. But um, I don't think John's bought that. Um, but that's, I, hopefully that stuff will be coming out on Fabstract because it's some really amazing stuff. Yes. Um, to me, it's, it's playful experimentation, you know, um, in, a, in a green cloud. So um, I don't know what's coming out on Faustract. I'm, I'm waiting to hear. So, um, so yeah. So, but after that, I think 
but it, sort of concurrently, I did solo stuff as well. Yeah, like Signal Path and you know, uh, the, the, the things like you know the lay albums that Louis was involved with, like Random Rules and uh, Huddle House. Was the last one you did uh, the Devil Laughs? Was that your last? One? Yeah, your last album together. Yeah. So is it the case now that yeah. you're you're just archiving stuff, but potentially writing stuff for new? new kind of albums and recording sessions. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but the, the, as I say, Fabstract will be the last of the kind of formal from the archive compilations. Uh, the difference with Fabstract and the two GIST ones um, is that it'll be just a Stuart Moxon album and um and it's all unreleased whereas, whereas the just some of the just stuff has been released before on those two albums that are already out there um so it's all you know it's all new stuff basically and in the meantime i've just finished well i, I finished it quite a while ago um a new completely solo album of very short songs there's about 25 songs i think called grace notes Blimey. and that'll be that'll be coming out next year I still have countless songs, which I, some of them are just on paper and in my head. I don't, you know, I haven't even recorded them. Um, I've also done a secret project under a, under a completely different name. Fantastic! And, What's that? Well, well, <laughs> that's just the most fun. Uh, just the most fun, and um, uh, it's a whole it's a whole idea, and I, I can't talk about it because it is it's a secret. It needs to be. Yeah, it needs to be. Um, it's going to be coming out with Grace Notes. Um, it's not actually an album. It's probably about. It's, a, it's about half an album. On, it's going to be on CD as a, as a, a thing that comes out with Grace Notes. Mm. So Grace Notes is sort of my my next, like if you like, my next big solo album, and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, it came about as a. It's an album of very short songs, sort of impressionistic idea, you know, where you you listen to, you know, some of them are only a minute long or whatever like that, you know. The longest one, I think, is by far is about two minutes 40. Um, but the rest of them are around about less than two minutes. And they're all very different from each other. And, um, and it's me actually, in my mellow, mature period, having fun, having musical passages for the sake of writing something beautiful, um, my daughter Melody uh, has got the most wonderful emotional voice and she sings on three of them um, and you know there's piano on it and there's all sorts of stuff so it's quite a bit of departure really in, in a lot of ways for me um, yeah. creatively yeah, and it's quite up to date and everything so uh, yeah and I want to do an, another one of the secret albums I think this is a very strong uh idea and it works really well and I'm, at the moment I'm listening to it occasionally and absolutely loving it you know so yeah I feel like you know in, in a way it's my the whole arc of my so-called career the best thing that could have happened was that the band Young Marble Giant split up after this huge success I did the gist thing and then went into hiding effectively and I therefore I wasn't um, exposed publicly exposed i disappeared i put out a couple of little quiet albums and i wrote and wrote and recorded and recorded and recorded and i got my shit together and um the whole john thing in the 90s helped and now i'm back with john 
who's the best person to be with. You know, I've got a really good team, um, and and I'm and I'm writing. You know, I'm so so enjoying you know what I'm writing, and uh, and and also this secret project is like you know another personality, a whole different way of working, and. I feel like I'm, you know, I've I've avoided the most of the pitfalls of rock and roll. Really, mm. I'm still here, you know, and I'm doing the, my best stuff. I think, you know, uh, certainly, you know, I feel very happy about it, and and John does too. And he's no mug. He's got a great commercial ear, you know, and I really trust his ear, you know. So when did so, you? I was just going to say, when did you think? Oh. I'm going to do my memoir. Did you? Was this a lockdown project? <laughs> um, it was probably just a handful of years ago, maybe maybe three years ago. Um, you know, if if you care to look at it, you find I'm not on Wikipedia. Everyone else is on Wikipedia. I'm not. Um, I, I wouldn't know how to do it. I, I actually looked into it once, and it's like, oh no, I can't do that. I'm too left-brained. Um, I won't get an obituary in The Guardian, you know, I don't have my own radio show on Six Music. A lot of people, a lot of my peers are doing these things, and I'm completely obscure. But I've always been focused on music, you know, as I say, almost to a fault. And and I have to accept that, you know, it's, it's you know, this... Basically, I thought, well, no one's going to write my story, so I better do it myself. I love writing. Get on with it, you know. Yes. And um, so I, I, I did a, I started to write it and um, my partner Mary's brilliant at, you know, um, someone to give it to you to read and get good suggestions and ideas and stuff. And um, yeah, I was really enjoying that, doing that as a new thing, you know, to write a long form prose thing. And I put it out as a booklet with, um, I think, the second Gist album, Holding a Pattern. I think it came out with that one. Could be wrong. It might have been the one before. I can't remember. But anyway. So, and, and then I, I was approached by um, an academic magazine from a university, the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, um, you know, would you like to, you know, sort of send us some prose um, uh, and some poems if you want and I uh, said you know uh, do you want your arm back and um, they pay as well and uh, so um, to me this is such a turn on because it's proper you know it's a literary magazine you know it's, it's marvellous so so I started writing again and, and I sent off I said I, can I do this like Dickens in instalments and they said yeah so I sent off my first instalment, and um, that will be coming out. I don't know when, actually, but um, it's all very, very opaque. They, you know, this whole world of academia is like, it's like it's very difficult to find things out. But anyway, so um, yeah, so it's happening. You know. Did you uh, find you when you yes. were doing when you were doing the book and starting to write it? Did you find your voice, you know, the, your writing style, quite comfortably? I, I think I did, really. I mean, I, I mean, I do write a lot of prose, which no one knows about, you know. Um, I don't often put it on Facebook. I put a lot of poetry on Facebook. And, but, um, yeah, I mean, I've 
I've always wanted to be a writer. That's really where I started off, you know, uh, a novelist, actually, is what I always wanted to be, because I, as I say, I was a bookworm, and those, those are the things that I really admired. As, you know, music, I never never thought, like, never crossed my mind to do music, you know. Um, and, and in fact, music is a vehicle for me to write, really. I always write the lyrics first, you know. Yes. Um, uh, and I happen to be musical, so I can, you know, if, if I write a line or two, it's all in there, you know. It's easy to get a melody. You've got the rhythm and whatever, and I find that quite an easy process. It's a very enjoyable process, you know. Um, being completely untrained musically as well means I'm just pleasing myself, you know. If it sounds good, do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, God, it sounds like... Um... Because I know, I think we spoke about five years ago, and you were you were feeling quite low at that stage in your life. Hmm. You were sort yeah, of... well, I'm a, I'm a typical depressive, you know, <laughs> depressive artist. But, uh, no, I mean, it's having support from John, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so important, you know. Um, otherwise, you're just on your own, and you're, you know, twisting into the universe. There's no, there's no point in doing it, you know. Yes, no, absolutely. And That's how it feels. It's absolutely. I mean, just to kind of, if you could have said something to your, I know, 16, 18-year-old self, you know, like starting out, mm-hmm. is there any sort of like words of wisdom or sort of bullet points or something that you thought, oh, God, yeah, even if it's not connected to music but just life in general, is there anything you would have just whispered in their ear, even if they would have just ignored you? Did you would you be tempted? Well, not tempted, but is there something that just jumps out? What to say to myself? You mean, to my well, say you self. know, if you if you saw yourself back then wait, as, as as a sixteen year old, you know, if it is if there's one or two little bullet points that you know wisdom that you've you've picked up over the last fifty years, you know, I just wondered what what you would have just kind of whispered or just you know made a note, think, yeah, that's something that I've learnt that I really wished I'd known when I was starting out, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've said these things to my children, actually, because they've, they've been through a very similar situation that I went through, you know, with their parents divorcing out of the blue and their dad having to leave the home, you know. Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of, I think it would be something along the lines of, um, you know, you, you have huge resources which you don't know about and you're intelligent and you want to understand, you know, um, you want to understand how what's happened and, and how to um, make your own way in the world, you know. Um, uh, and, and that in itself is is a brilliant thing. So don't worry, you know, um, you've got all that going for you, and uh, you know, uh, you're, you're also as as, you're, as my dad always said, you know, if you fell in shit, you'd come up with brass earrings. You know, you're very lucky. Mm. You're a lucky bloke, and uh, it is a fact. You know, I mean, I say this, I'm. I'm, I'm begging to be cursed now i know but <laughs> but it's true i am i am you know i've been very lucky you know um and i you know i mean my kids you know i, I have my beautiful daughter and she's i say a fantastic singer a wonderful 
woman and my boys uh, and they've all got degrees my one of my sons going to be a doctor you know he's going to cambridge in september for four years to do his um phd you know he speaks japanese my other son his twin brother is in north vietnam working there you know um he says that they all play the guitar um we're all musical uh, my daughter is, and i now are she's giving me snippets of songs that she's writing. So we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to start recording her. We're going to start writing together, you know? So, um, yeah, as Jonathan Richmond said, you know, you're all right. <laughs> you're all right. <laughs> yes. Thing. <laughs> I think, I think Neil Kinnock also said that, didn't he? In his build up to the great election that he got absolutely thrashed. Going, we're all right. We're all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, bad. Mm, I shouldn't have finished with that, should I? That was a bit depressing. Politics. No, well, no, I mean, politics is just, you know, it's a goldfish boil over there, isn't it? You know, full of nasty people, mostly. It's uh, very, very disillusioning. And in a a way, something we can do about it, it's almost an irrelevance, isn't it? You know, it's okay, we can't afford petrol, we can't afford food, but (laughs) (laughs) life, life goes on, you know. But, what can you do? Life goes on. But then, in the, yes. But I guess, yeah, it's it's all fine. It's fine as long as we're not being bombed and shot at. We're, well, yeah, we've got exactly. a, we've got yeah. a chance, haven't we? Well, it sounds amazing. You're like, I mean, I have to say, it was like, I didn't quite expect to have quite so many little uh, twists and turns and cul-de-sacs of excitement. But that was fantastic. I must admit, I can see why you're oh, writing good. your. Thank you. I'm I'm pleased you are writing your memoir. I'm yes, I yes, it, it has to be done. I think it's good, and I I love, and hopefully you've kept a few bits of memorabilia posters flyers and and photos we, we've got a you got everything all the press yeah it's yeah it's, yeah. it's fantastic well i i i dove, i think archiving is brilliant so um, for various reasons but i think it's good so i'm, I'm really excited i'm yeah i really hope you can give it the focus and uh, attention to make it a masterpiece It'll be, um... Well, yes. Um, I think it's going to be a, a second draft, really, because what I'm realising is that just just telling... A, it's a musical memoir, so just telling, you know, the sort of, if you like, the, the framework um, of, of the story leaves out a lot of anecdotes, you know, and, and I might have to go back and do a third draft um, with all these the juicy bits in, you know, Yes. But there's so much, so much of it, you know, there's so many stories. Um, <laughs> I know, this is, this is all good, isn't it? I know, you'll have to um, yeah. have a thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, you know, retired from doing the uh, dreadful menial jobs now, so in theory I should have the time to, uh, to attend to all that. Yes, brilliant. And are you still, just lastly, I mean, with the, with the members and your brother, are you... Is it all cool with the band, as you know, in the sense of just just playing with the archive and having reissues and occasionally, you know, having the odd cup of coffee with each other? Well, I, I don't ever see Phil and Alison together. I don't know if they ever see each other, actually. No. I mean, in those 27 years, I didn't see them in the same room together, except for once at a club. Um, so, and I, don't, and I hardly saw Alison at all. Um, I do go and visit her occasionally because we get on fine, actually. Yes. She's a lovely woman. And, um, yeah, I mean, 
the band is, is is non-existent in any sense now. You know, it's uh, it's in the past. You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, so so yeah, but I get on fine with. I saw Phil recently. You know, um, and uh, you know we lost our mum uh, last year. Is it last year? Yes, it was. Was it? Oh God, I don't know. Who knows? I lost my brother and my mother and my best friend all within fifteen months. Um, yeah, it was two thousand and one. My brother and my mum went within two months of each other. Um, so that's changed the landscape of everything. You know, there's you know there've been funerals and stuff, and uh, they bring you together, don't they? So, oh God, that's tough. That is tough. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a bit of a bastard the last two or three years. For, you know, the pandemic's been the least of it, really, for me yeah. and Phil, you know, and for the family. Yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah, man. it's been, been, yeah. I've been, you know, I was conscious that at 65, I'd never lost anyone, apart from my grandparents, but that was donkeys years ago. Yes. Nobody close to me had ever died. And I knew that, you know, most people have. And this means there's going to be a pretty big spate of dying going on. If not me, because I mean, I, I've come so close to it so many times, you know, and um, that motorbike thing for a start, you know. Um, but also, I have uh, I had heart failure. Um, I have heart failure, it's a chronic condition. So, you know, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with that, but um, yeah, yeah, it's just been has been a rough time as well. Yeah, no, but music, you know, to be able to make music. So I'll finish with one little anecdote, which I actually wrote a song about. Um, I went down to the chemist to get my batch prescription renewed, you know, mm-hmm. and in the queue, in the queue there, this is just before the pandemic, and out came this oriental chap I'd never seen before, and he was the pharmacist with a clipboard. He said, oh, he said, uh, would you like to help with this, just a standard sort of customer service? Like, yeah, okay. Went into the little room, you know, and asked all the questions, and then he said at the end, what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I'm a songwriter. And standard response, oh, wonderful, you know. And I said, um, yeah, it, it's, it's really gratifying. It's a lovely thing to be able to do. It's really satisfying. I'm very happy to be a songwriter. But I said, I bet you've got a nice house, haven't you? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, change your car every three years? Yeah. Couple of holidays? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Married, kids? Yeah, yeah, all that. Yes, he said, I said, well, I live in little people's home for people who were poor. It's an arms house, actually. I live in a, in a bed sit. Um, I, I can't remember the last holiday I had. I've never got any money. I'm stressed out about money all the time. He said, yeah, but he said, you know what? I would rather be doing what you do. I said, really? And he said, well, would you swap with me? And I went, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And... Yes, and, and there is a song about it. So <laughs> that was that was amazing, you know, little exchange. That was yeah, that was quite a touching moment, wasn't it? Yeah, it was good. Anyway, look, I must I must let you go. But thank you again for this, and um, oh, pleasure. It's pleasure. been amazing. Yeah. And if you, I'm glad you finally got it together. I know, but that's yes, we're patient people. But look, this is great. Yeah. And if you want, I can always send you the link, and then you can always use it on your Facebook please. page. Do but you, please, please send me the link, and I'll send you um, the records as they come out or get them sent to you. Yeah. Oh, yes, that would be brilliant. Tiny. Yes, that's tiny global. Anyway, look, I'll take care. Take care, and I'm going to go to bed now. Okay. But thanks a lot, and right. uh, speak again. Okay. See you. Bye-bye. Cheers, David. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. bye.
And that's me in conversation with Stuart Moxham, talking about life in music, art and everything else. If you're still with me, us, well done. You deserve a house point. Anyway, look, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, yeah, you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Complain about how long the interview lasted. But never mind, you shouldn't have bothered if you didn't like it. Um, all these have been archived, aren't you lucky? On Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, so C86... Yeah, indie pop, that's what we love. Also a bit of an obsession with David Bowie and various other things. So there you go. Have a great night. Um, Stay safe. Bye.